Waldy and Bendy. Hello, and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. Now, the theme this week is consistency. In a world that keeps changing, some things need to stay the same, right? So I'm still Valdemar Januszczak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and my friends still call me Waldy. And I'm joined once again by a man who continues to stride across the world of art like the Colossus of Rhodes. He's an art dealer. He's an art historian. He's a TV personality. His given name is Bendor Grosvenor, but legends don't have given names. Legends have nom de guerre. And this man, my partner on these humble podcasts, his nom de guerre is Bendy. Oh, Bendy, for a man like you, the world must seem a tiny place. Well, well, I'm striding today. I've been striding today in my shorts because it's lovely weather. The sun is out and I'm wearing shorts for the first time in months. Oh, oh, I'd love to see your legs. I bet you've got really handsome, sculpted legs, haven't you? So handsome and long, they won't fit on a Zoom camera. <laughs> I've got some really long, sculpted, um, columnal legs, you know. Um, uh, so so yeah, I wear shorts whenever I can, actually. And actually, I've got short, fat legs. But I do like wearing shorts. I think it's a sign of the summer. So I'd love to see you striding around your farm with your shorts on. That would be great. It would be really exciting. Well, when you come up and stay well, then we do eccentric things like build some land art, which is on our list of things to do. You can, we can both wear our shorts. Yes, I'll definitely wear my shorts. Uh, oh, dear, I'm really looking forward to that now. Uh, but I have to wait because, as always, Bendy, it's a busy podcast first with all sorts of arty things happening in every direction. So fans of St. George, the patron saint of England, you'll be pleased to hear that Bendy and I will be investigating the depictions of St. George through the ages. So that's more dragons coming up than in Game of Thrones. Also, the National Gallery here in London has just bought something extremely beautiful. But what is it? And you know that Beatles song, Yellow Submarine? Well, we're going to be talking to someone who thinks it's a surrealist masterpiece. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. And don't forget, listeners, all the art we talk about, everything in the podcast, it's all illustrated and annotated in the podcast pages at zczfilms.com, where, incidentally, you can also buy one of the few remaining Waldy and Bendy t-shirts. There's only a couple left. They've been selling like hotcakes. First, though, Bendy and I have once again put ourselves at the mercy of the calendar. So, Bendy, yes, the calendar has once again grabbed our diaries and forced us to take notice. Because today, the very day we're recording this podcast, Bendy, is Earth Day, April the 22nd. That's the day when those of us who care about the future of the planet get a chance to express our hopes and dreams, talk about climate change and learn more about it. Um, so, did you see that big TV documentary on the BBC that Greta Thunberg did this week? Oh, I have, I've yet to watch it, Waldy, I'm afraid. I've been so busy this Earth Day. I've been in the garden. I've been in the actual Earth uh, digging holes. We're about to take to the rear of a lot of uh, Marillo cherry trees, and we've got to get mm. everything ready to plant them. So, there we go. I'm being so earthy in my shorts. <laughs> but uh, on your farm, do you have those kinds of ambitions? I'm hoping you're going to say yes, of course, and describe some to me. What, ambitions to what? 
but to be sort of environmental and, and conservationally and save the world and, and fight fight climate change. We're full of all that. Yeah, we're we're absolutely um we're all for it. We grow as much as we can here and we feel virtuous and we eat our fruit and veg. And uh, we do everything as um, naturally as we can. I mean, we're only a little tiny little corner of Berwickshire, but, um, you know, we do what we can. Yeah, it's a lot easier, I think, for you than it is here. I mean, in the middle of London, it's hard to do those things. And I can't really go out now without feeling there's too much carbon monoxide in the air and all that. But art, of course, uh, as always, art's managed to get itself involved with all this, Bendy. Um, and one of the notable things that's happening is that Yoko Ono, the famous conceptual artist, uh, well, she's produced a set of placards that have gone up all around Britain. Railway stations, motorways, town centres. Um, I saw one the other day on the Chiswick flyover as you come into London in between the, the uh, skyscrapers there. Um, and what they are is these big white posters uh, with the message, I love you, Earth, written on them. So straight to the point, typical Yoko Ono. Do you know her work? Do you like her work, Bendy? Uh, I, I know it a bit. I can't say I, I like it. I struggle to understand it. Um, I've been doing as much uh, sort of research into her work as I can, knowing that we were going to discuss her uh, for the podcast. And uh, I tried really hard to understand it all, Waldi. And I came to the conclusion I can't. And um, you may try to uh, persuade me of its merits. And usually in this, you're successful, but uh, we'll have to see. Well, I, I sort of know her. Um, I mean, she's a wonderful person, I think. And she has set out very deliberately, really, to try and just change things with, with slogans, with all the sorts of bits of conceptual art. I mean, she's a very, very well-meaning person. Um, and she uses, um, I mean, in many ways, the same sort of thing as, as Greta Thunberg, in the sense that she uses her supposed naivete and her simplicity of her comments, really, just to sort of punch through and speak beyond me and you, really, to other generations, you know. And I think that's some of the stuff that, that she did in her music as well. Anyway, um, the thing is, I've been trying to get to talk to her, right, for this podcast, but um, I haven't been able to get an interview, Bendy. She's been too busy doing climate change stuff. But uh, as I was tidying up the uh, ZCZ office the other day with, with Taya, the producer here, uh, we came across an old interview I did with her, and that was back in 1999. John Lennon, right, her husband, John Lennon, had just been chosen in this huge nationwide poll in Britain as the most influential songwriter of the millennium. And of course, Yoko, uh, Yoko Ono was thrilled by that. Uh, so I caught up with her in New York in her studio. Uh, and we talked about the Beatles. We talked about John Lennon. And the thing is, this tape, right, has never been heard before. This is uh, an exclusive. So um, it's me and Yoko Ono talking about, about John Lennon. But there's a few art things in there as well. So uh, it's a sort of treat to, to the listeners, I think, because as I said, it's not ever been heard before. Yoko, is it really true that you didn't know him and you didn't know the Beatles when you met well, I heard about the Beatles as a social phenomenon, like I heard about Elvis Presley, but, you know, like, um, in Sarah Lawrence, we were into jazz or something like that, you know, more jazz and classic, and, and uh, Elvis Presley was a phenomenon that was kind of in the distance. When I was in Japan, in Tokyo, <clears throat> I saw a tiny article like this in a huge newspaper, like a tiny article, just saying, uh, these mop-top boys with the strange haircut are now getting very popular. I said, oh, well, that's interesting. But I mean, it, it was in passing. I didn't think anything of it, really. Yeah. So your own musical tastes were more towards classical music and, and jazz? Not even jazz so much, but classical, yes. And um, yes. Well, my father's influence, I think, because of 
his influence, and he was into Schoenberg and Berg and all those sort of 12-tone writers, you know. And uh, I think I was introduced to Schoenberg uh, by my father, and it's kind of interesting um, angle. And in Sarah Lawrence, uh, of course, uh, there was a music library, and I, I one thing I loved to do was to go to the music library and just listening to music almost all day or something like that, if I had time, you know, and sometimes I did. So it was the music library that sort of uh, educated me, probably. And when I met John, I felt, okay, here's this guy who was writing these songs, and he kind of showed me, like, Yellow Submarine and a few other songs, the lyrics, you know. I thought it was kind of simplistic, you know. <laughs> and then it, it just occurred to me that I was reading Yeltsin, it just occurred to me that it was like a surreal poem. poem. And from that angle, like a surrealist poetry, you know, it made quite sense. I mean, yellow is the color of light. Submarine, the subconscious, is moving in the water, which is the emotion, you know. I thought, it's fantastic. And saying that we all live in a submarine, a yellow submarine. I, I felt that was incredible, you know, bringing light into your subconscious or something like that. And, and uh, these guys are kind of singing to uh, the, the white public, you know, and the, the, the songs are being played in played on radio and uh, phonographs at home and all that, and all over the world. And it's an incredible, powerful thing to do with a surrealist poem. <laughs> and it's, that, that's how I interpreted it then. And then suddenly I understood what they were doing, though maybe I suspected that they weren't that aware of what they were doing, but it was just a very powerful thing happening there, you know. Yes, exactly. But Yellow Submarine, in the way you describe it, uh, it presumably isn't something that, that the Beatles would have had in mind. No, I'm sure they didn't, but the point is, so what is it? It's almost like a blessing that, you know, it came through them or something, you know, in terms of maybe uh, acting as a, a medium, you know, something like that, you know. And I, I really felt that it was an incredible kind of um, message just coming through them. And they might not be really... Uh, aware of the total impact, but it doesn't matter, you know. And so I kind of respected all that suddenly. But still I felt that the, the music, uh, the, the structure of music, the form of music was a little bit too simplistic. The chords and, the, you know, the beat is always the same, you know. <laughs> one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, you know. So, oh, okay. But then suddenly that's another thing I realized. Oh, that's the heartbeat. I mean, a heartbeat is simple. I mean, it's not like, you know, the Schoenberg, Pierre Dulaire, Lunaire, you know, like uh, every bar is a different uh, rhythm or something like that, you know? So it goes with a heartbeat. It goes to the beat of the universe. Beautiful, you know? So suddenly I understood the power of it, you know? I mean, that was the power of rock. But I thought, it's great. And I fell in love with that, you know? Was that kind of conversation you would have with John about things like that? Yes, but you see, the thing was, of course, he was the master. <laughs> he was the master rock, you know. And I, I could say that I, I was privy of um, the classical and the avant-garde kind of field, you know. So together, when we met, I'm giving him a few recipes that 
you know, I gained through my experience. And he's giving me some recipes that, he you know, and together we kind of exchange musical recipes, you know, uh, secret recipes that we gain. Or, and it was very strong. That was very powerful. And we were totally interested in that, you know. So it wasn't just sort of like, um, oh, let's hop into bed kind of relationship. It was, that was just by the way. And there was so much else that we shared. Did you begin to understand the, the Beatles' music better then afterwards? Well, I mean, I was only understanding as a social phenomenon, and then I was starting to th- think, well, what is the power of it? Where is the power, you know? And, of course, the obvious is that all four of them are kind of um, attractive people, etc. you know, on camera, <laughs> and very tactful, extremely, I mean, you know that, you know, their public relation was, like, perfect, and they did it themselves, you know, that kind of thing. But I think uh, I'm, I was more interested in the real sort of like um, the fundamental power, you know, that, that could really go so far all over the world, you know. And that was the beat and the poetry. And the poetry, which was something that came through them, and it was very interesting. It wasn't just on the level of, you know, a, a pop song, just to make people feel... Uh, feel good, feel good music, you know. Poetry was quite interesting, I thought. Can you remember how uh, Imagine came to be written? <laughs> well, it's um, <clears throat> something that he wanted to write, and uh, we were in that mood of, you know, trying to sort of not just uh, be songwriters in Ivory Tower or something like that, but try to communicate on that level. And so, and it was to create a song that would influence the world in, with that vision that he had. But because of that, therefore, that he had to use very simple language and very simple chords, and, and I think, you know, he managed it. So that would have been a deliberate decision by John. Yes, you know, yes, because, you know, I hear these days comments from other Composers, you know, like, oh, oh, it's so simplistic or something like that. Well, that's how I felt about pop and rock anyway. I mean, so I, I understand that feeling. But then, um, you know that, uh, uh, for instance, uh, as a politician, I understand that Reagan was a very astute politician in the sense that he wanted to use words that are all very simple so people understood it. And when he had... When he had used some words that are a little bit complicated, the message didn't go through so well. And it was immediate kind of effect, you know, the difference between using some heavy words and not using, you know. And I think John, as, um, as a composer and as a kind of communicator to the world, uh, almost as a politician, he understood those things. And so that Imagine was written in a way that uh, is very understandable. Yeah. So he could have written a more complex song. Of course he could, you know. He was in one of the best composers of age. He knew all the tricks that all the composers would know, you know. But this one, he wanted to make sure that it was simple enough for it to really communicate to the whole wide world. It was specially um, composed that way for people to be able to sing. 
And it was for the people, not for the, the few intellectuals or the critics. He wasn't trying to please any critics, music critics or anything. He wanted to communicate directly to the people. So here's your song, you know. And uh, so there are many songs that uh, people who could not write their own songs for some reason and got, got the songs from him. And they're singing that. And it's beautiful, I think. Is that why you think people found him so influential? Well, the, the, yes, obviously. He touched their souls. And uh, I think that uh, music in the beginning was somehow um, <clears throat> composed for the lords who asked them to compose the, the music or whatever. And, uh, you know, it was a privileged thing in a way, you know. But he was saying that uh, he feels that he was a traveling minstrel and going around, you know, with a guitar or a banjo or whatever and, and singing the song in the corner of the street, you know, that, that sort of thing, you know. And um, he felt that he was communicating on that level, not to the privileged few. Oh, so there you go, Bendy. Um, you said before you're not really a fan, but just 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 to talk about her strategies and and what comes out in that interview a bit, right? I know it's about music. I know it's about John Lennon's songwriting, but something that her art and John Lennon's art had in common was this desire to change things, right? And they did it with simple slogans. So John Lennon, as she says there, you know, when he wrote Imagine, he deliberately made it simple so that it would, it would not be delivered to me or you. It would go above our heads and, and straight into, into the populace out there, if you like. And a lot of her word pieces are like that as well. In this interview, you know, you can't see this because obviously all you could do is hear it. But if you saw it, she is sitting in front of the, one of her posters saying, uh, war is over, you know, which is both a line from one of the Beatles songs, but it's also a sort of placard, you know, it's a, it's a piece of conceptual art that's put out into the world. And I just like so much this determination of hers, really, to, to sort of change things. But anyway, did, did, did you enjoy the interview? I did enjoy the interview. I mean, I, I don't remember getting the memo when we decided that uh, Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art was going to become Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Music. I, I'm, not, I'm not too good at music. I haven't got much to contribute to that discussion. And, uh, you know, I prefer Bach to the Beatles, but that's, that's fine. But, you like the Beatles. That's good. And you're, you're good but, at music. I think um, it, it was charming hearing her talking about uh, things like the Yellow Submarine, and that shed a little bit of new light on it for me. I suppose it is all quite surreal. Um, uh, the thing I struggle to understand about some of the, the messages in her art, I understand what you say about the simplicity of it and the importance of having a simple message for things to cut through. I think on the whole, though, for things to really cut through, they've got to have, they've got to be persuasive. And I, I'm not sure that just putting posters up saying more is over or I love you, Earth is enough in today's rather brutal world to actually persuade people that these things are important. Well, I'm sure it isn't enough. I mean, it's part of a whole range of things that could be happening, isn't it? I mean, of course it's not enough. I mean, look, it's a tradition, Bendy. The 19th century didn't have it so much, but the 20th century, there was this sort of tradition. Artists, put, you know, bring out manifestos, the futurist manifesto, do this, do that. You know, let's break down the museums. Let's, uh, you know, and then later on, in, American artists like, you know, Barbara Kruger in the, in the 1990s brought out that famous bit of word art. I shop, therefore I am. You know, and there's Jenny Holzer with her word art. So this sort of strategy of, of trying to just speak to people in the streets, I mean, it's, a, it's quite a venerable art strategy. But 
she, she brings a sort of air of innocence to it. There's something about her which just seems so pure and lovely. Um, and her art is like that, actually. One of her famous pieces is a chessboard, right? Except that it's all white. So it's not a black chessboard and a white chessboard. All the pieces are white. And it's sort of dreamy. Um, it's got that mood of imagine all the people, you know. Um, and the her, her white and black are her colours. You know, a lot of things are white and, and, and the black writing on it, as in these placards for, for the Earth Day. And she's... She's just a wonderful force for good, I think. I mean, she, every year um, she goes to Iceland and on John Lennon's birthday, she fires this giant laser into the sky um, and it just shoots this beam of light right up into the sky. And, and you look at it and you think it's going to go right up into the cosmos and beyond. Um, and then sometimes if you're lucky, the northern lights happen at the same time. And it all just gets dreamy and slightly fairy taley, And it's like a, an optimistic mood that um, someone is bringing into the world to fight against all this darkness and horribleness and reality. And so I, I like her very much, actually. Uh, and good luck to her, I reckon, in everything she does. I mean, it's it's all commendable stuff. And she's had a, a fabulous life and has contributed a lot of good in the world. I, I you know, just going back to the, the word art stuff, it's never really floated my boat. Um, one of her famous things from, from her book of art instructions, which I think is called Grapefruit, isn't it, was... Um, to encourage people to to carry a bag of peas with you everywhere and wherever you go to leave a pea. I'm not hmm. entirely sure what to do with that. And I'm have sim- you not done that? Have you not done that, Wendy? <laughs> well, if I don't on your I farm. Do, I have bags of peas with me and I plant them. So it's all, you know, but just sort of randomly dropping a pea around the place if I was on the bus or something. I don't yeah, I don't no, Am I not see, supposed to take it seriously? No, you're it, supposed to take it seriously ish, but in a symbolic sort of way, isn't it? And there's my favourite piece by her of, of that sort, of these sort of simple instructions, is, 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 it's a white piece of card with a hole in the middle, right? Yeah. It's the round, perfect round hole. And it's a card for looking at the sky, a hole for looking at the sky through. So you hold it up and you look through the sky. And, you know, it's a sort of hippie pleasure. It's, it's just a basic hippie pleasure. It's, it's ever so slightly silly, but it's also charming. And why not? You know, and what's wrong with it? That's, that's, that's my sort no, of feeling about it. Nothing's wrong with it. And I suppose... Perhaps a lot of it makes more sense if if you've uh, taken quite a few drugs in the 60s and 70s. I don't know if that, that helps. But above all, I think probably what's wrong with it, and as ever, you're, you're a force for good in these discussions, is that when I tried to research Yoko Ono's art for this podcast, I encountered a whole, you know, the art world sort of guffy take on it all. And that probably, you know, um, led me to look askance at it in, in a in a slightly overly critical way. And I should embrace, as you say, the the simple innocence of it. I think that's right. And of course, in Britain in particular, you know, she's always people always say horrible things about her, like she broke up the Beatles, she took our John Lennon away. And the fact that she's Japanese certainly um, encouraged all sorts of of, of of horrible xenophobic comments. Um, she's 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 been the victim of, of, of some nasty commentaries. Um, and hopefully she's, you know, she, she, she ought to be loved as one of the great conceptual artists of now. Uh, and most of the world does that. But I think we, we in Britain have a little bit of trouble with it. But not on this podcast, because I see you're coming around to my way of thinking. And I am a paid up Yoko Ono fan. Um, but um, let's, let's leave it at that. Uh, I ho- hopefully the, the listeners didn't mind being railroaded into a bit of music there instead of just pure art. Uh, because there's a lot more coming up on this podcast, Bendy, and most of it is as pure as art gets. And do you know what? The calendar hasn't finished with us either yet. Because this week wasn't just Earth Day, Bendy. April the 23rd is also another big international occasion. And so, for the first time ever on this podcast, we're getting a double dose. 
of dodginess. Dodgy, dodgy, dodgy anniversary. Ah, who would have thought it, eh, Bendy? Another anniversary, two in one week, huh? Um, This time, it's St. George's Day, which is officially April the 23rd. Now, here in England, that's thought of as a very English day, because he's the patron saint here. It's also a big day in Bulgaria, Ethiopia, Georgia, Lithuania, Malta, bits of Spain, that's Catalonia and Valencia, bits of Italy, Venice and Genoa, Palestine, bits of Greece, and Moscow. Fact is, St. George has a saint's day in all those places and is probably the most international saint there is. Everybody claims him for their own, but small wonder he's appeared in so much art. So you and I have set ourselves the impossible task of looking at some of this art that he's appeared in um, and trying to say something sensible about it and kind of trying to choose which one we like best. So Bendy, it's an impossible task, but should we, should we start with a sort of obvious uh, St. George, which would be, I guess, the, the Uccello one, that's St. George, it's got dragons and all that, what do you think? Uh, yes, Paolo Uccello, this uh, painted in about 1470, there's actually two versions, are we going to talk about the one in the National Gallery? Yes, that's yes. what I'm thinking of, yes. That's a slightly more sort of uh, developed one. There's a there's another version on panel in the Musée Jacquemart in Paris, which I think I prefer, but uh, the one in the National Gallery um, is a little bit more dramatic. And we have the typical scene of St. George slaying the dragon to rescue the princess. And this is the legend of St. George, which is um, absolutely not true. Uh, we, we know really hardly anything about the real St. George's life. But the legend that sprang up in about, I think, in about the 11th century is that he was um, he happened to be uh, soldiering in a town in Libya. And the town was ravaged by a dragon. In order to placate the dragon, the townsfolk fed it um, various things, including animals, people and children. And on the occasion that St. George wandered along, they were about to offer up the princess, the daughter of the the king of that area. And St. George was having none of this. So he uh, heroically slayed the dragon and saved the princess. And in this picture, we see a rather curious dragon. It's, It's only got two legs. And for some reason, the princess uh, has it on a lead, like a dog lead. Uh, and St. George is uh, trotting up on his uh, grey horse and uh, stabbing it with his lance. Hmm. It's all sort of frozen in time, isn't it? Although it's actually a, a scene of fighting in that St. George is meant to be uh, spearing this dragon to death. I mean, it all feels incredibly static, doesn't it? They're, they're almost like painted sculptures. The horse is rearing up, but it's frozen in movement. The dragon's frozen with a scowl on its face. Um, and the little princess with the dragon on a chain, um, she's static too. Isn't it quite controversial, this picture? There was a point at which it was, its authenticity was, was in doubt, wasn't there? And people said, oh, I'm not sure if that's really a cello. But yes. it's, it's one of those pictures which makes a perfect greetings card, isn't it? It's, mm. it's, it oozes a certain sort of sweetness. And Uccello is an artist who, who I usually like more than I like in this, because this is like the sweeter side of him that, that there is. And... You see, although we don't know a lot about, about St. George, what we do know is that he was probably born in, in Turkey, right? He was Turkish Greek and Cappadocia. He was almost certainly, if he, if he was a historical figure, he was almost certainly in the Roman army in Palestine. Uh, for me, the curious thing is, is how this character, who basically has absolutely nothing to do with Britain, nothing to do with England, um, how he ended up as, as our patron saint is one interesting thing. But another thing is just how his legend turned into all this other stuff. I mean, there's no, in the early documents about St. George, there's nothing about him killing dragons. That all pops up later. 
So he's a classic example, isn't he, of a, of a completely sort of fictitious figure who seems to fit the bill for, um, for other people. Um, yeah, in, in this particular scene, I think he's made out to be so sweet and innocent, and it's a, it's a, it's a very charming picture, but in no way does it feel authentic, does it? Uh, no. And have you come across the, the poem by U.A. Fanthorpe about this picture? No, no, no. You're going to recite it for me. I have a little few lines here prepared. It's rather a lovely poem, and there's not many uh, good poems that relate specifically to paintings. We've had a few on the podcast before, but uh, Fanthorpe was, was struck by the picture, and she wrote this rather amusing poem. There's a few verses of it. I'll just give you the first verse. And it's written from the perspective of the dragon. Not my best side, I'm afraid. The artist didn't give me a chance to pose properly. And as you can see, poor chap, he had this obsession with triangles, so he left off two of my feet. I didn't comment at the time what, after all, are two feet to a monster, but afterwards I was sorry for the bad publicity. Why, I said to myself, should my conqueror be so ostentatiously beardless and ride a horse with a deformed neck and square hooves? Why should my victim be so unattractive as to be inedible, and why should she have me literally on a string? I don't mind dying ritually, since I always rise again, but I should have liked a little more blood to show they were taking me seriously. And that um, that rather uh, that captures all the sort of rather um, naive things you didn't like about the picture. It does, doesn't it? To a T. Well, in that case, let me trump that <laughs> with a St. George that's got all those things that are missing there. And uh, it's a sculpture in this instance, right? It's, a, it's another early 16th century sculpture, and it's found in Sweden, in the main church in Stockholm. And it's by a sculptor called Bent Knotka. I'm sure I pronounced that awfully, but it's something like Bent Knotka. Uh, it's one of those artists who sort of disappeared into the Northern Renaissance, and we don't hear much about here, but, but was obviously a great artist. And this thing is in the middle of the church, and it's fantastic. I mean, this is a rearing, roaring St. George with his sword held up in his hand. To, he's about to smite the dragon underneath him. And the dragon's got all these little baby dragons coming out of the ground around it as well. So he's not just killing the main dragon. He's also killing the offspring that are about to come out of it. So it's a savage Viking thing. And the thing about it, it's so spiky and interesting. So when you first see it, I mean, this is going to sound strange, but when you first see it, it looks like, I don't know, like a, like a crab or a sea urchin or something set up against the light. There's all spikes. Have you seen it in the flesh? I've seen it in the flesh, yeah. 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 I've, I've even filmed it, actually. Yeah. Um, and it, it just looks like a weird, grotesque kind of thing, like a monster in the church. And only when you get closer do the shapes start to make sense. And you realise that the spiky things are the dragon's wings or the dragon's tail or St. George's sword or the, or the horse's armour, you know. So it, it finally makes sense. But its initial impression is already jagged and, and ghastly and terrifying. It looks like the dragon is made with antlers, deer antlers. Is that right? It's got bits of deer antler on its head. Well, not deer antler, more like tusks, really. Yeah. But, you know, dragons had to be invented, didn't they? Yes. I mean, this is the whole thing. The dragons had to be invented. I mean, whoever came up with the first dragon was constantly trumped by other people coming up with better dragons. Yeah, and Ugello's dragon has been roundly trumped by this one. Ugello's two-legged dragon. 
yeah, your, your cello's dragon looks like, like the sort of thing that if it was slightly smaller, you'd see a posh lady in, in Paris having it on her lap, wouldn't you, and stroking it, <laughs> it's a lap dragon. But this thing would eat you, Bendy. If you get if you got this anywhere near your sheep on the farm, I'll tell you, it would, it would eat them all. It's just a fantastic piece of action sculpture. And what I like about it is that it's in Sweden by a guy who never gets talked about. It is actually, what I think, one of the great late Renaissance works of art. Yeah, uh, poor old Notka. I mean, he's he's a victim of the um, the way the Italians absolutely captured all the propaganda about the Renaissance. Um, but this was made in in the late 1480s, and it looks I haven't seen it in the flesh, but from the photographs, it looks absolutely extraordinary and so vivid and 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 real and quite terrifying actually. And it's mm. made of all sorts of it's made of wood and metal and hair and leather and all sorts of things. It's a very special. Thing, yeah yeah a work of, of engineering brilliance as well um it is but it, it it was commissioned uh to celebrate the victory of stin stuer the elder who was the regent of sweden at the time and he'd defeated the danes um in a famous battle which which basically um helped uh, sweden to gain her independence and on the the headdress of uh, saint george here we see feathers which are yellow and blue so those are the, the swedish colors uh, and the statue is, is a little glimpse into how St. George is co-opted into so many countries' histories, as you as you said at the beginning, at the the battle, uh, the Battle of Brunkeberg, which Sten Stuer the Elder won in 1471. Uh, before the battle, he invoked the protection of St. George because St. George, um, obviously uh, slaying dragons, was was a great sort of soldierly figure and uh, a chivalric hero. And because uh, Sten Stuer the Elder won the battle, um, he had this amazing sculpture created. Oh, there you are. You know more about it than I do. It's, it's a fantastically exciting thing. Great to see some great Scandinavian Renaissance art as well. It's a treasure trove of stuff that doesn't get talked about enough, I think. We should say that beside the dragon, slightly separate from it, is the figure of the princess. And she, she doesn't feature in most of the photographs, but if you're Googling, worth looking up uh, because it's a beautiful uh, statue. And it gives me an opportunity to say another Swedish name very badly. Uh, she's thought to represent Ingeburg Akestotetut, who was the wife of Sten Stuer the Elder, who was meant to be represented by St. George. So it was a sort of a propaganda piece in a, an actual portrait. That's fantastic. Do you know, when, next time I do an introduction to you, after I've done the art dealer, uh, art historian, uh, TV personality thing, I'm going to have to say multilinguist in Scandinavian languages. I'm so impressed. You do far better on those than I do. Much better, much better. Well done, Bentley. I still can't say Weldon. Well, neither can I. I was 16 before I could spell my name. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Let's move on um, to uh, an English St. George, right? I think, I think we should do an English St. George. Um, and it's one that it's interesting because it doesn't look like St. George at all. It's in fact a, an extremely modern St. George compared with the other ones. It's found in the Imperial War Museum of all places here in London. Um, and it's a painting by, well, I think you can tell us who it's by and what it's about, Mendy, because it feels to me like it's, it's right up your street somehow. Well, you chose this one, Weldy, so actually I think I'm going to throw this one straight back at you. And I was going to say, are we absolutely sure that it's St. George? Yes, we are absolutely sure it's St. George. Oh, as far as I know, that, that's that's how it's always labelled. That's what it's labelled as in the in the museum, isn't it? St. Yeah, George. It is, but he's, um, he's, you've seen that little, he's got a, we should explain to the listeners, it's a, it's a depiction of a, a soldier on the front of the First World War. And you see just above his like, gas mask bag, um, yes. it looks like there's a shell. And oh, that's yes, normally kind of the attribute show. of St. Michael, who's another one of those sort of warrior archangels. 
Uh, well, it's also it's also Saint Jacques, isn't it? The um, scallop shell, the pilgrim shell. Isn't it a pilgrim shell? Um, anyway, it's said they say it's Saint George. I think it's Saint George. Well, let's run with it for the podcast. Yes, and it's yeah. by a chap called. He's one of those guys who's got an interesting one of those English names where it, it, you've got two letters that are supposed to sound like one one letter, right? So his name is Charles Folks, but Folks is spelled double F O U L K E S, isn't it? I don't know anything about him except except that he was the founder, wasn't he? More or less of the Imperial War Museum. He's certainly the first curator there. That's right. So he's um, uh, a really significant figure in museum history because the Imperial War Museum is a fascinating place. I mean, wars won't go away, and neither will the art that's made because of them, as we're going to be seeing later in this program. Um, so he's an interesting fellow all round, and I didn't really realise till I was looking for Saint George's to to talk about uh, that he was a painter too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is an absolutely fascinating image because it is, as, as you so rightly said, it, it's an image of a soldier in um, in a First World War battlefield. Um, he's standing underneath a, a Red Cross sign, um, and the Red Cross is sort of strangely reminiscent of St. George, even though it's more like a, a Red Cross cross than a St. George cross, but it brings those colour schemes into play. Um, he's holding, not a spear in this case, but some kind of military equipment. He's got a bag around his shoulder. Um, there's this barbed wire around his feet. There's just a sense of uh, somewhere that's been blown up or despoiled. And he's got a balaclava on his head, you know, like they sort of wear under their helmets, sort of black balaclava to stop the helmet rubbing your head. So it's, and then the thing that makes it interesting, he's got a halo, right? a halo, white, very, very specific white halo. So uh, a modern military uniform has been tinkered with to give it the air perhaps of, of, of medieval warrior wear so the balaclava could be sort of chain mail the things around him his neck could be medieval armor and but the halo sing, singles him out and i understand it um, as a as a sort of picture of a british soldier from the first world war in the identity of saint george because saint george was supposed to be a roman soldier who fought in all those wars in palestine and back in in the in the third or fourth century this is like a modern version of him um, but there's a poignancy to that there's a sort of sadness a sense of the first world war flooding through it so i think it's there's a sort of slightly anti-war propaganda going on there but above all there's this message that that that, that, that if, all of us really everyone who's gone to war every soldier is a kind of saint george that's how i'd sort of see it that's how i'd read it what do you think yes i think i'd go along with that i mean it's a fascinating document in the way that so much war art is and it the war art doesn't necessarily have to be brilliantly painted and with the greatest respect to, to mr Fawkes, um it's it's not a great work of art i don't think but it is uh fascinating for what it represents and uh, it reminds us that actually the imperial war museum is is not just a place where they have uh, spitfires dangling on cables from the ceiling but actually uh, houses a really fantastic collection of paintings it's always worth a, worth a visit hmm. it is um anyway bendy Moving on more specifically to St. George, uh, you've chosen something interesting here. Um, it's something that, uh, I mean, I suppose those of us who were watching the burial of the Duke of Edinburgh, the funeral at uh, St. George's uh, Chapel in Windsor Castle um, uh, over the weekend uh, would have noticed. And that is a, a range at the back of Beyond the Coffin. There was a range of his medals and the things that he'd been given, various uh, honours that he'd held. Um, and prominently displayed amongst them was the Order of the Garter, right? Mm. Um, and the Order of the Garter is, of course, uh, all about St. George, isn't it? Yes, the Order of the Garter was founded by King Edward III 
and uh, he specifically chose St. George as its patron saint. Uh, Edward III, one of the sort of the great warrior kings of English history, um, uh, invoked St. George as a protecting force in a number of the battles that he won, uh, the Battle of Crissy in 1346. Um, so that's the beginning of the process by which uh, St. George becomes the patron saint of England. And the, the Order of the Garter becomes the sort of preeminent uh, royal chivalric order. Uh, so Prince uh, Philip, um, when he was in his uniforms, he would have had his blue sash on. The blue sash is the Order of the Garter. Nowadays, they don't wear the garter around their, their leg, uh, which they used to be in the old days. Uh, and you also have, um, in the full regalia, you have a, a garter George, it's called, around your neck. And that's the uh, a jewel of St. George on his white horse, killing the dragon. And the one I've chosen for our little selection here, I chose it for you, actually, Waldemar, because I know you like you like bling. You like a bit of jewellery, a little bit of shininess mm. in your life. Oh, I do, um, I do. And this is the garter George that was commissioned by King Charles II. And it's got 120 diamonds on it, Weldy. I love the way the diamonds are arranged. It's, it was made in the times before they, they started sort of um, ordering diamonds very regularly. Uh, mm. Well, they were cut, cut to look like brilliance. Yeah, they these, the, things, they these things are just sort of, they're called. Mm. Yeah, they're just sort of slapped on any old how all over the dragon and the horse and the and St. George. It's, it's quite, quite dazzling. Mm. Um, now, the significance of this one is not just that it's a fantastic bit of craftsmanship and jewellery, uh, but because the, the Order of St. George, the Order of the Garter, had become the preeminent royal chivalric order, it, it was the symbol by which, more than anything else, the kings said, we are royal, we are the king. Um, and when Charles II came back from his exile after the interregnum, the Oliver Cromwell interregnum, uh, he found that all the, the royal regalia had been either destroyed, melted down, or sold off by the Cromwellian regime. So he had to recommission a whole lot of new ones. And this little, this particular garter, George, uh, was made by the um, Robert Viner, the royal uh, jewel maker at the time. And it's just the most extraordinary thing. And uh, if you look in one of my favorite English portraits, which is the huge depiction of Charles II in his coronation robes by John Michael Wright, which is in the Royal Collection, where he's sitting there with all his regalia. You will see this specific jewel in the picture. And uh, it, this, this specific jewel became so identified with the king um, and his, his position uh, that it was one of the few bits of jewellery taken into exile by James II um, when he had to flee uh, when William III invaded England and took the throne. Um, so um, eventually it finds its way back to the Royal Collection where it is today. Um, and it's just amazing how a little bit of jewellery, uh, some diamonds uh, came to symbolise so much about uh, royal mm. power in Britain. How lovely. So so everybody who becomes a Knight of the Garter, they get their own jewel, do they? So You don't becomes... get one. You have, to, you have to go and make it if you fancy it. Yeah, you have to uh, I see. buy your own. Yeah, uh, but yeah, this so. the, obviously the, <laughs> the monarchs and their children have have their own ones already, and this is you must have a few in the house yourself, wasn't you? I mean, given the, your your family, you know, you've, how many orders of the garter are there in the Grosvenor history? <laughs> uh, no, there aren't. Um, I have not. I've not come across a nice uh, diamond jewel in the in the drawers anywhere. Alas, <laughs> I can see you in a garter. Huh? Anyway, it's just a very very beautiful thing. Um, and yes, I mean, I I, I I like a bit of bling, and and I have to say that I was very struck by. Um, I didn't know it was in the Royal Collection, uh, but uh, next time they have it on, on show, I'm going to search it out. 
Um, let's go from that, which is the, the sublime, really, isn't it, to the ridiculous, in my opinion, which is um, our final St. George. I mean, chosen really to give us breath, so we've got lots of things to talk about. But it's by uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, the, uh, the great pre-Raphaelite, um, and it's a painting called The Wedding of St. George and Princess Sabra. Now, um, of course, everything about St. George is basically a fantasy. And as you said right at the very beginning, we know almost nothing about him. So all these stories, all these accretions, they've all just things that people made up as they went along. Um, I mean, you know, he only became the patron saint of England. When was it? What, the 14th century? In the 16th century. So uh, Edward III begins the process of, of taking, adopting St. George as this great sort of English patron. Right. But at that point, the actual patron saint of England was Edward the Confessor, um, the last Anglo-Saxon king of England. Uh, and it was only in 1552, Waldy, that hmm. St. George became the patron saint. And do you know why? Um, uh, no idea. It's to do with the Reformation. And when Edward, um, when during the reign of Edward VI, they decided to abolish all these terrible Catholic saints, um, the one they could not abolish was St. George, because St. George and his flag had become associated with, with the crown and English power. So they, they felt they couldn't abolish St. George. He was the only saint left, so he became the patron saint of England. How about that? The thing I do know is that uh, the Cromwellians, you know, the Crom Cromwellians basically banned all feast days. So when mm. they took power, the Cromwellian Puritans got rid of Christmas, they got rid of everything. But they didn't get rid of St. Saint, Saint George's Day. So April the 23rd was even for them um, a feast day. It remains so. Mm. Uh, I don't, did you, a few years ago, a funny thing happened. Um, the I remember this because it was in the news. The mayor of Genoa. So Genoa is another of the places that has St. George as its as its patron saint, but also the flag of St. George is the flag of Genoa, right? Oh yes. And and it's and it's been that way since whatever it is, the, the you know, the tenth century or something. Mm. And the mayor of Genoa, I remember, uh, sued the English Parliament um for using the flag of St. George. Because he said it's uh, it, they have the copyright. Genoa has the copyright because they invented it first, and of course it it didn't get very far this case in the courts. But it, it was a serious uh, serious um, uh, argument raging about it. You know between Genoa and England, who who really owns the uh, the flag of Saint George? Um, anyway, it is ridiculous, almost as ridiculous as this painting by Dante Gabriel Rossetti, which is this other another fantasy story about Saint George. Um, and there he is sitting there with his beloved Princess Sabra in his arms, cuddling up. And he's a sort of handsome pre-Raphaelite guy with blonde hair. She's a typical pre-Raphaelite beauty um, with, with long, dark, Titian-esque locks. Um, and there's a bit of dragon stuck in a box by the side of them. So he's obviously beaten the dragon, right? Yeah. Um, and he's taken the princess as his reward. Uh, but the poor old dragon, it looks, it, it, it'd been cut up into bits and literally stored by the side, like a, what looks like an old fruit crate. Um, so it's this story just driving people crazy, really, as far as I'm concerned. And it's a sort of obsession with George. Uh, but this is a particularly silly one, don't you think? It's particularly silly because I, um, the princess is obviously so enamoured with St. George for, for saving her and is obviously a bit turned on by the slain dragon's head propped up in the box next to her. And uh, they're about to go off and, and do what the pre-Raphaelites did quite a lot of. Um, I think the, the princess is modelled on William Morris's wife, Jane, isn't it? Jane Burden, that's right, yeah. yes. Uh, but it's course, this, this ridiculous picture sort of it slightly encapsulates another reason why uh, St. George became the patron saint of, of England or patron saint of a lot of sort of 
English blokes of a certain age, and I think that's the idea that you can you can attract uh, women by <laughs> beating people up, beating things up. I think you've really, really hit the nail on the head there, Bendy. And I think I think there's all these lancelots, aren't there, running around who wish to lance as much as they possibly can and catch their Guinevere's. I mean, the whole myth of Saint George with his with his horse and his big flag with a red cross in it, running around killing dragons. I mean, it's macho stuff. And of course, it's still playing out now, isn't it? With um, English football fans uh, of a certain type who go around being aggressive in the name of St. George. Um, I mean, it, it, he's the patron saint of, of, of some pretty angry people, isn't he? Um, <laughs> but let's look, this is not worth, I think, um, a, 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 you know, a full floor to ceiling Waldy and Bendy award. Um, so let's just should we just sort of decide as, as we've come to recently just decide which one of these we think is the best saint george my vote would go for the swedish one for um the knotka i think without doubt yes yes okay so folks uh, if you really want to see a great saint george and this is particularly aimed at all the skinheads out there who might have a, the flag of saint george tattooed on their foreheads that sort of thing guys Go to Sweden. There's an absolutely great one there in Stockholm. Uh, we, meanwhile, Bendy, um, we have to move on a bit, don't we? Because there's still more to happen uh, in this podcast of ours. Uh, we've done St. George, we've done Yoko Ono, and now we're going to go to what we want hanging on our walls during these final weeks of the lockdown. On the Wall. Ah, on the wall. Uh, usually, usually somewhere where um, we go to escape a bit, don't we, Bendy? Just have wonderful things hanging on our walls. But I see that this week you, you're not really escaping. You're sort of facing up to stuff, aren't you, with this fantastically interesting picture that you've chosen? I've chosen a painting by Christopher Richard Wynne Nevinson called The Battlefields of Britain. It was painted in 1942. And at first glance, it looks like... Um, perfectly lovely um not particularly exciting depiction of of britain as seen from the sky uh it's a cloudy sky um sun pouring through to certain patches of green landscape at the bottom there's a silvery reflection of a river winding its way through the landscape and that at first is what you think it is and then you notice in the distance uh three tiny specks which are fighter aircraft i don't know maybe hurricanes or Spitfires or Messerschmitts, uh, which are uh, plunging uh, towards the ground through the clouds, about to engage in battle. Um, and this, of course, is a depiction of uh, the Battle of Britain, which happened uh, a couple of years before in 1940. Uh, now, Christopher uh, Nevinson, um, many people might uh, know his First World War art, um, which is in the sort of the more vorticist style, um, which he's he's famous for. Uh, depicting soldiers all marching off to the front in a seething uh, mass of sort of mechanical forms. Um, uh, but by the time he painted Battlefields of Britain, he'd, he'd become a little bit more of a realist. Um, and uh, and this is just a, such a striking picture because I find it so, it's such a subtle um, piece of war art. We spoke earlier on about uh, war art and sometimes it can be uh, a little bit in your face. Um, and Nevinson had, uh, he'd been to the front as part of the Royal Medical Corps, and he painted certainly enough uh, in-your-face um, depictions of, of the Western Front and all its um, uh, terribleness. Uh, but this picture of the battlefields of Britain, I, I think just sort of, it perfectly captures the paradox of the Battle of Britain, which must have been, you know, a, a terrible, bloody fight fought desperately amongst uh, beautiful sunny skies with rolling 
um, landscape beneath it. And I just find it a, a really um, fascinating picture. Uh, and this particular painting belonged to um, Richard Attenborough, uh, the great filmmaker and actor uh, who had served in the RAF during the war, part of that amazing generation of mm. people who um, not only brought so much of the war to life in, in war films afterwards, but had actually uh, served uh, during it. So uh, I would like this on my wall um, just to look at and, and, and be thankful for for all those who, who fought in that conflict. Uh, a friend of mine, the historian Ian Mortimer, wrote about the, another re We've sort of slightly been slightly mocking about the reasons that St. George has become the, the patron saint of England. Uh, but Ian um, uh, wrote a line, which I think sums it up quite nicely, actually, that, um, that, that there's also a side of St. George which stands for the courage to face adversity in order to defend the innocence. And one of the reasons that George has become the patron saint of England is because he represents that triumph of good over evil through courage. And I think this picture is a good depiction of that. Hmm. It's a fantastic picture. Um, he must have flown himself, Nevinson. Um, I, I guess he must have been um, sent up in, uh, in some, uh, some of the fighter planes himself or some of the bombers because it's, a th above all, it, at first sight, it's a thoroughly convincing, sort of dizzy look down on the land from above um, with these puffy clouds. And as you said, these, these, these really warm English conditions. You know, there's, people always say about the Battle of Britain that there's also the paradox was that um, the weather was so perfect, you know, it was such sunny, wonderful weather. And yet all across the sky, these murderous things were happening. Um, that, that atmosphere is really perfectly captured here because you really do have to look hard to find the planes don't mm. you um in, in in the corner what you get above all is just this almost idyllic sense of, of floating high above the clouds looking down on this picture perfect england with the river snaking through the middle of it um yes of course uh, and the battle of britain i mean my people the poles they played a big role in that as well you know mm. bendy there yeah. were the two famous polish squadrons squadron 302 and 303 um, based in London, and the Polish Polish airmen did their bit as well. So um, it's 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 a compelling picture. And um, you know, I, I don't really know Nevinson's Second World War work, as as you said, his First World War stuff is usually much better known, um, and his arguments with the vorticists and all that are, are very well rehearsed. Uh, but this is this is a, a fantastic painting. Yeah, I mean, it really really sums up a, a lot of uh, the, the way that it must have all happened. And uh, as I said before, just this sense. Of, a, of an idyllic landscape with the darkness thing happening in the distance is very compellingly and interestingly put. Love it. Good. Um, I'm staying in England as well, sort of. Um, the National Gallery in London has just announced the purchase of a new picture. Now, um, first of all, I saw was a press release saying they've got this thing right, and it's by an artist called Isaac Lutichoice, a uh, Dutch painter. And I thought to myself, Isaac Lutichoice. Who the hell is that? Never heard of him. Mm. Um, so I wasn't expecting much. You know, I just thought so they, they found some obscure artists and I'm not going to like it much. But then I got a, a, a reproduction of the, of the painting sent through to me oh, and, it, and it took my breath away. Honestly, it's such a fantastic picture. I mean, Isaac, looted choice. Where have you been hiding all my life? <laughs> it's the most beautiful portrait of a girl. She's anonymous. We don't know who she is, but she's a young girl, I guess, what, 13, 14, something like that. Um, wearing rather sort of stage Dutch clothes. There's a there's a big collar around her neck. There's a well, grey outfit with turned up uh, cuffs. She's standing by a big column, but she looks. She's got this amazingly interesting face with this 
very compelling expression. These sort of dark eyes look out at you. And there's just a character in there that it feels so tangible. And I know it's very much a cliche to say you really think people are recognisable in their portraits. But this girl's presence is so strong, considering she's only a small little thing, you know. And there's a sort of fierceness across the ages, but also a delicacy and a wonder. Um, and I just love this picture. I, and before the National Gallery reopens, which is in a few weeks' time, um, I want to steal it back from there and have it on my wall for a while so I can stare at it. Um, I want to find out a whole lot more about Isaac Lutte Choice, who, interestingly, was born in England. That surprised me in 1616. and went back to, uh, to Holland when the Civil War broke out. But, I mean, how, how can a guy as talented as this fall down the back of the sofa in the way he has? Because, let's face it, I bet you haven't heard much about him either. He's totally obscure as far as I can see. There's not much about him anywhere to be found even. And yet he paints something as wonderful as this. I mean, it's one of art's great joys, isn't it? You keep coming across new things. Yeah, it's a fantastic picture. And you're so right to highlight the fact that um, sometimes these artists can fall into such unjustified obscurity. And that's one of the reasons I, I love being an art historian is because occasionally you can discover a work or even if you're really lucky, an artist. Um, and we, we tend to assume in art history uh, that we, we know everything. We know who painted what, when, we know who's important, we know who deserves to be admired. And actually, we really don't. We've only been doing you know, art history in the conventional sense for, for about a century or even possibly less. Um, and there's still so much more to discover. And hurrah for the National Gallery for um, recently they've done this. They're quite shrewdly, they've, they've bought works by names that you and I, even you and I, might not be very familiar with. And uh, it's so nice to, to go to a gallery, the National Gallery, where you think you'll know all the big names and you know all the great works, and there's something new there by an artist you never heard of, and it's, it's a real thrill. So a lovely acquisition. It is. Well, art, art is all about that, I think. I mean, it's, it's an endless treasure trove of stuff to be found. You know, our best St. George is by Bent Knotka, and most of us don't mm -hmm. know much about him. Mm -hmm. um, I love this picture. Even Nevinson isn't that well known. I mean, it's a treasure trove. And the great thing about this, this podcast, Bendy, is that you and I can just jump into this treasure trove and gobble it up and have loads of fun finding new things. Um, but unfortunately, that's going to have to wait a bit because we've actually reached the end of this particular session of gobbling stuff up. Uh, so for me, it's, uh, it's goodbye. And for me, it's cheerio. <laughs> Goldie and Bendy. Bendy.